Hi, dear listener. Zach here. I'm proud of the work we did on Call of Discovery and Keyforge Public Radio, and last year I took my love of podcasts full-time with my company, Rooster High Productions. If you know someone with a business who wants to broadcast their expertise through podcasts and derived social media marketing, send them my way to Zach at RoosterHigh.com. Thank you so much. And welcome to Call of Discovery, the podcast where we invite you on a journey into the Crucible for a fortnightly celebration of all things Keyforge, its community, and the excitement of Discovery. I'm your co-host, Zach Armstrong, somehow still here, uh, along with the insurmountable, inestimable Ed Pocock. How are you today, Ed? It is It is good to be here on the mics again with you. I love your intro, Zach, but didn't you want to do an intro and then be like, we have to mulligan this intro? Oh my gosh, and now we're actually mulliganing it because I forgot. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Rewind the tape! Hello and welcome to Call of Discovery, the video series where we invite you on a terrible, torturous experience into the Crucible for an every day of the week funeral of all things. Key- oh no, no, that's bad. Ed, who? Ha- why did? Who handed me the wrong script? Have who? Are you in charge of hiring the interns, Ed? Because I'm not sure this is right. <laughs> you made the hiring decision, Zach, not I. But I think we have to mulligan this intro. Ah, uh, you're right. Okay, <laughs> wind it back and uh, uh, play the backup song. Uh, where's the backup song? Hello and welcome to Call of Discovery, the podcast where we invite you on a journey into the Crucible for a fortnightly celebration of all things Keyforge, its community, and the excitement of Discovery. Hey, we put it in our name. That's nice. I'm your co-host, Zach Armstrong, still here, uh, almost two years on. That's coming up. My work anniversary is coming up. And the man who I hope bought me flowers is Ed Pocock, and he's here with me. How you doing, Ed? I'm doing well, thank you, Zach. I'm doing well. Um, I, in fact, did you did send you flowers, but they were sadly taken away um, at the U.S. border for being invasive species. Oh well, yeah, yeah, that would that would do it. That yeah. would do it. Yeah. Um, mm. I, I do look mm. forward to meeting you in in the in the flesh at some point, um, and I hope that they don't quarantine me at the border as an invasive species <laughs> as well. <laughs> Uh, yes, you're, yeah, you're, you're, yeah, I, I hope not either. That would be awfully inconvenient. That'd be awfully inconvenient. Terribly and a part inconvenient. of my master plan. 
speaking speaking of things from shadows today we are joined by none other than carlo phantom from house shadows he's an elf he's a thief and every time you play an artifact he steals for you but give him half a chance and he'll steal the whole of it. Wait, oh, nope, wrong Carlo. That's next week. Today we are joined by Carlo from the YouTube channel All You Can Board, uh, which he runs alongside Dylan. And today we're going to talk about mulligans. Uh, but first, uh, Carlo, thank you so much for coming on to Call of Discovery. We are honored to have you. Oh, thank you so much for having me, guys. Uh, yeah, happy to be on. I know it uh, reached out a little while ago. I'm glad I could make it happen. Yeah, us as well. Us as well. Uh, and we'll preface this, if you are especially in the know with Keyforge Media, uh, you will know that All You Can Board, uh, specifically Carlo, put out a video on Mulligans just this past Sunday. So if you haven't watched that, make sure to check that out. We're going to cover some complimentary topics today. And uh, this is basically going to be everything you ever needed to know about Mulligans between these two uh, Carlo featuring pieces of media between the video and the podcast. So that'll be it. You don't have to read anything else about Mulligans. You'll be done. Your words, not mine, Zach. <laughs> uh, that's that's true. That, that's not the first time that's been been sent to me when I when I make a big a big promise a big promise. Before we dive into our focus topic, we always do like to get to know our guests a little bit better. So, Carlo, tell us a bit about yourself. How did you discover Keyforge, and how did you end up starting your own board game channel? All right. Well, yeah, a bit about myself. I just became a dad about, uh, I guess, a bit over 10 weeks ago. So pretty, pretty busy these days, but uh, glad I could make time for this podcast. Um, in terms of how I discovered Keyforge, well, um, <clears throat> so Dylan, who I uh, co-run our YouTube channel with, he and I grew up playing a lot of Magic, uh, Magic the Gathering when we were like teenagers and stuff. Um, and maybe about, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago or so, we kind of stopped playing it as much. And uh, part of it was just kind of like the barrier to entry. I didn't really want to keep up with, you know, having to buy tons of cards and be rotating out of sets all the time and that kind of thing. And so I think it was just on the uh, board game subreddit. We kind of became huge board game fans uh, about, you know, 10-ish years ago. And uh, I think I just heard a while before Keyforge came out, this unique deck game, Richard Garfield, and I was just kind of immediately sold. Uh, we both started like looking up all the cards online before it was released. So like day one, we went and bought a bunch of decks uh, with a friend of ours and just cracked open all these decks together and started started playing the game. So um, we were into it pretty heavily right from the start. And in terms of our YouTube channel, um, it was just something Dylan and I, like we're, we're cousins, but also close friends. And we uh, we had a bit of a history of kind of like doing little like video projects together even as kids we always film silly little like movies and stuff like that and um i guess for a while we hadn't done anything like that and we were kind of thinking of like what's another like kind of creative outlet we could have together and we were really passionate about board games and we just thought one day like why don't we just try starting a youtube channel and we just kind of like see what happens so we launched that in january 2020 which uh i believe that was right after keyforge came out uh called the archons was what late 2019 if i'm not mistaken uh late 2018 um, 28? Okay, well then it was yeah. it was already out for a while then. And uh, yeah, but we launched it not obviously knowing that there was a pandemic uh, coming up in a couple months, which has led to some challenges in terms of just like being able to play games and meet up with people and even just obviously get into Keyforge more. But uh, yeah, that's pretty much my journey into it. Wow. Wow. Yeah, I uh, I didn't realize the channel was on the younger side just because of y'all's uh, sheer production quality. And yeah. I think you're pretty uh, pretty well north of uh, 5000 subscribers if i remember correctly so that's uh, that's awesome that's awesome yeah 
Thanks, Zach. Well, uh, I got to give yeah. credit to Dylan for the uh, production quality. He uh, has a background in videography, so he does all of our, um, you know, camera work, all the editing, all the post-production kind of stuff. That's that's credit to him. The professionalism certainly comes across, and um, and the content as well is fantastic, which <laughs> means all of our listeners should, should definitely check you out. And there's certainly not a one-to-one relationship between good content and good uh, good quality production on YouTube. That's for sure. Right. Oh, thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Yeah. And uh, with Keyforge, something I find between the unique decks and the kind of people it attracts, uh, people always have good stories about uh, something connected to Keyforge that was just really meaningful. So whether it's a game or an experience with a person uh, or, a, or a particular deck, uh, what, what would you say is your favorite Keyforge memory something something that happened that you remember really fondly that definitely would not happen in any other card game uh well maybe one quick one i'll just race through i mentioned to you guys before the the podcast started here was uh just that the first deck i ever opened had two carlo phantoms which oh, that's to right. me like yeah. you know it's, it's not my, my name carlo isn't a super common name so opening that up was uh i kind of just stood there in disbelief for a second especially because we opened i don't know how many called the archons decks that day and not a single carlo phantom was in any other deck um but in terms of my most like the memory that sticks with me the most i would say was probably one of the two um tournaments that i hosted at my place when i just invited over a bunch of friends some of which had never played the game before or um you know didn't really know much about it and just kind of came over with like oh yeah i guess i'll try this out kind of thing and just we did a sealed deck tournament the first time and then a few weeks later we did uh um, a reversal deck tournament and they both went over super well and then a bunch of friends were like messaging me later being like oh i'm playing games on the crucible look at all these decks i went out and bought and whatever so that that definitely sticks with me pretty fondly that you know, hosting the tournaments here was such a success and seeing how passionate my friends were about this game immediately when I wasn't really sure how they would take to it. Oh, that's great. Uh, that's great. And what, what an awesome thing to have a, uh, a tournament at, uh, at your own house, getting a bunch of your friends into it. And that's, that is some of the sweetest moments I've experienced is uh, very similar to the one you described where your friends were excitedly messaging you after you got them into the game saying, oh, I'm playing on TCO. Oh, I, I opened this cool deck. Oh that's, oh, that's awesome. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, ha- had you played previous card games in the past or was Keyforge your first kind of foray into, into the collectible card game world? So Magic uh, was pretty big for, for Dylan and myself growing up. I, I think I started playing it maybe in junior high, I think probably like grade seven or something like that. Probably played it into maybe high school or maybe early university years kind of thing. And then kind of gave up on that. I kept my cards for a while but didn't play much. And then since then, the only other uh, sort of dueling card game that I ever played was I dabbled in a bit of Hearthstone uh, for a couple mm. of years, just, you know, online Blizzard game. Um, but eventually fell out of it for a similar reason as Magic, which was kind of felt like you had to keep up with the the meta. Um, for anyone who like has watched our YouTube channel and sees like the type of Keyforge player I am, you might know already that I, I approach it more as from like a casual standpoint than a competitive. Like I'm not looking to, you know, uh, go to the Vault Tour and pick my best deck and just play it over and over and master you know, playing my best deck sort of thing. And uh, playing Hearthstone, it felt very much like as soon as there was a new rotation, a new, you know, uh, patch or whatever, it was like, 
very quick for all the pros to find out what was the best, what were the few best decks, and everyone was kind of building those same decks. So even if I could experiment with my own decks and try building new ones, I was still going up against the same two, three, four decks all the time, and that quickly drove me away from the game, and I haven't gone back to it in some time. And that's that was, you know, part of what appealed to me so much about Keyforge was that like every single time you play is a different experience, and you can't just you know follow what the pros are doing. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. And I think Keyforge lends itself to being um and I think casual is a good word. I think I think for some people it's a it's a loaded word, but I, I think at the heart of it being a good casual game, because it is, uh, is that like people have lives. Like may, maybe you're maybe you're at college university and you have uh, you play card games, but you've also got to study. Maybe you're uh, maybe you're a young adult. Maybe you're a, a parent of some kind, right? Maybe you have a busy job. But Keyforge, there's not going to be as much like two to six deck meta domination of a certain deck. Um, it's more it's more accessible to just pick up a deck and play, and it also attracts people who might not even want to play just their strongest decks against you. They're going to want to play different decks to figure them out, uh, figure out the the puzzle, and um, and just have a lot of very uniquely Keyforge Keyforge experiences. So I think it just I think it just fits in life as an enjoyable card game better. Well, fortunately, uh, holding up at the at the competitive top end as well. So yeah, yeah, that's great. absolutely. And honestly, I have to say the other thing is that because I'm so passionate about board games and I'm all about exploring like what kind of games are there are out there. Um, that also is why Keyforge fits into my life so well as kind of a casual game because yeah, I don't want to no, just pick one or two games and play those games all the time. I always want to be seeing like what else is out there. Oh, 100%. And and so what are the other games that, that catch your eye? Maybe they're similar to Keyforge or maybe they're completely different. Who, like you're talking board games? Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, we're talking board <laughs> games, Mr. All well, You Can Board. <laughs> <laughs> put me on the spot here there's so many to name uh i mean i kind of got into board games with uh carcassonne which is a mm. tile laying game uh, that you might be familiar with um haven't played it as much in the past few years i've kind of moved on to some other games but uh agricola is one of my all-time favorites it's a nice. pretty punishing worker placement uh game by uve rosenberg yeah um in terms of card games i really like race for the galaxy a lot it's a really really good game um I'm also a huge fan of, I was a bit late to the party on it, but uh, Innovation, which I remember, uh, you might remember Richard Garfield was talking about it quite a bit on the uh, the episode when you guys had him on. In Fantastic fact, card game by Carl Chudik. Yeah, I, I actually bought a copy of that, um, but I haven't played it yet. It's sat, it's sat in my cupboard. It's waiting to be played. I have an unplayed shelf now uh, <laughs> at this point, which, um, but I'm, I'm excited because Richard, I think, said, it captured a lot of the magic that inspired Keyforge, and that that excites me. Yeah, it, it, there's there's a lot to explore in there, and it definitely feels a bit of that kind of silly. Like there's those big explosive turns, and you know you feel like you're out of the game, and suddenly you play a card or you do something that flips it on its head. Now you have the upper hand against your opponent. It's just it, it's one of those games I think you could play literally like hundreds of times, and it would feel different every time. Wow! Mm. Wow! Wow! And that's the interesting, I think we had an episode on this stack. If not, we should do one around balance and uh, is the pursuit of balance in, in, in games, is that the ultimate goal or does that take a lot of the fun and, and whimsy away from it? And I think Keyforge sits further on the explosive turns, mad things happening, you know, impossible scenarios uh, 
space than than uh, let's 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 uh, balance this out in the in the absolutely perfect way. Right. Mm. Yeah. No. And I think I think uh, that's that's an interesting point because I think the games that have more like if you have a game that is intending to have a competitive scene and that you want it to be truly a test of skill as the kind of primary objective, then you do want it to be more balanced and for there to be less randomness. Um, mm. But that's again part one of the things I like most about Keyforge is like the idea of taking a weaker deck and trying to take down a big deck is is so fun. I don't think of it as like oh it's unfair because I'm at a disadvantage. Like no, that's the beauty of the game, and that again is, is something that uh, lines up perfectly with with innovation in those games that have more randomness and imbalance. Yeah. yeah, and I think this brings us very neatly onto the topic of mulligans as well, which of course were designed or one of the reasons mulligans were designed was to bring more balance into inherently random card games or board games ultimately giving a chance to mitigate a certain amount of the the randomness um, that people face at the beginning of the game avoid some feel bad moments and i think we're going to talk a little bit how how that works um you know zach what are your experience what what was your first experience of a mulligan so my uh, my first experience with uh, mulligans and card games was uh, long time listeners will know i was uh, android netrunner player for a while an ffg reboot of another uh, garfield card game <clears throat> of another garfield card game and uh, that game has a very simple mulligan to mitigate the the randomness of the opening hand or at least you know give you a sense of agency uh, amidst the randomness and the Netrunner Mulligan, very simple. One of the simplest forms of Mulligan where if you don't like your first hand, you put it back into your deck, uh, you draw the same number of cards and then you have to keep that one. So the key forge is real similar to that, right? You just get, uh, one swap if you want, but you are a little bit punished because you have one less card, which of course only affects, uh, only affects your first turn as you get to draw up at the end so it makes sense to put a small uh, a small penalty in there because it really is it really is is a, a small penalty so um yeah i think i've only ever had ffg mulligans but i know a whole lot of different card games have have different styles uh but keyforges is certainly simple yeah and i i suppose magic is usually the the strong staging point for us to compare different card games um and certainly a, a, a mulligan has always been present in in magic as well and for magic it was probably even more important with randomness because you had the issue of lands and lands add an extra amount of randomness if you don't have enough lands in your hand then you can't really play magic um if you have too many lands in hand then you can't really play magic so your chances of getting a a, a hand a bad hand it's not wells collide brobnar it's probably much worse. Um, and what Magic originally did was allow you to draw up again, but with one less card. Um, however, um, unfortunately, I found out too late that they've changed this rule now to the London <laughs> Mulligan. So embracing innovation, which is really positive, I think, because they found that it could put maybe players at too much of a disadvantage. Um, so the new system, the London Mulligan, um, allows players to to mulligan um, and then they select a card from their hand um, so they draw up to the same number of cards with the mulligan 
but they select a card from their hand and put it at the bottom of their deck. So, you know, realistically, they're not going to get to that card unless someone um, really pulls them right the way through their deck. But, you know, it gives them agency of which card don't I need in the early game. Um, and uh, it doesn't incentivize mulligans, but it but it helps there. Um, unfortunately, I discovered this after going to a Magic event a few weeks ago. I was missing Keyforge. I wanted I wanted some events and uh, and I went to to a magic event and played played some draft. Unfortunately, um, I did not look at the rule set before going um, and <laughs> um, uh, player opposite me mulliganed and then put a card on the bottom of his deck and I said, "What are you doing?" And he said, "I'm playing magic." And I said, "No, you're not. Not my kind of magic. It's the kids <laughs> that are wrong." No. Uh, <laughs> Um, no, absolutely not. Um, I mean, it's called the London Mulligan, and I was playing in London, and yeah, I didn't didn't have the foggiest about it. But um, exciting event. Um, I, I guess that goes to show that mulligans have changed over time. Um, that a, a game as solidified as Magic had to change it with with the game. Um, Carlo, do you have much experience in mulligans across different board games um, as well? I know. Uh, Tragically, Carcassonne doesn't allow you to pick up a new tile if uh, if the one you get is, uh, is 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 not ideal or is the all city piece that no one ever wants. No, it absolutely doesn't. Uh, honestly, I can't really think of any board games I play that have um, a mulligan thing like that. There's some that have um, like start the game with a draft. Like if you're going to have a certain number of cards, you draft them first, and then that's your starting hand. But uh, no, honestly, my experience with mulligans is also magic, um, and I also didn't know about this London mulligan. I, I remember it being the uh, the previous way you described as well, um, which in in magic is obviously a bit unforgiving because you like it, it's unlike Keyforge, right? You're not going to draw back up to a certain number of cards automatically. Drawing cards is kind of um, a, a re- your cards are a resource in that game, so it is kind of punishing to mulligan and have one fewer card in your hand, even if you get to choose which one goes on the on the bottom of your deck. Um, and then through playing Hearthstone, I believe, uh, and it's been a few years now, so they could have also changed it, so don't uh, quote me on this, but uh, from what I remember in Hearthstone, it was, uh, you know, you draw your hand of whatever, three or four cards at the start, I think it depends if you're first or second player, and you get to pick which ones to kind of put back, and then you just draw, it just gives you a couple new cards at random, and it could be the same ones uh, that you got rid of, so sometimes you can mulligan and get back the exact same cards. Um but in Hearthstone, it was a little more, it felt like a little less of an interesting decision because your cards all have a cost. You know, you get one essentially mana crystal every turn, so you ramp up in how much mana you have, and your cards all have cost. So if you draw like a, and you have a small deck of 30 cards, so if you draw like an 8-cost or 9-cost card, of course you're going to mulligan that card at the start. So it usually just felt like, oh, I want to have cards that are low cost. So it, it felt like an, an easier decision without much like risk to mulligan. So it kind of mitigated a bit of that randomness, but not in a way that was interesting to me uh, like it is in Keyforge. Interesting. Interesting. Uh, It's it's fascinating how different games play with mulligans in a different way. Um, And 
Keyforge is very different than Magic, isn't it? Because of the the capital of each card, the value of each card is probably a bit less in in Keyforge because you see more of them more frequently. Um, Arkham is is uh, is a game that's like Magic in the respect that you draw one card at the end of each turn, so every draw is very very important to you. Um, and the mulligan for for Arkham, uh, Arkham uh, the the Living Card Game, allows you to essentially you look at your hand and you say what do i like what don't you like um you put the cards you don't like in another pile um you put the cards you do like in a pile and you draw the same number of cards as the ones you didn't like before shuffling the cards you didn't like into your deck um now in arkham there is also in your deck cards that work against you um and i'm not referring here to bad penny um or megan up um i am i am referring to to weaknesses that that are in place and you can just get rid of those as well um i would love to be able to mulligan a a, a bad brobnell worlds collide hand uh, but unfortunately <laughs> it's that's not the rule in implicit in the game right hey depending on the game most games if you've got a couple brobnell creatures in your opener that's it's not a bad start yeah. at all. No, you make a good point, Zach. You make a good point. That board, got to, got to get all you can board, right? <laughs> hey, uh, maybe one day we'll be famous enough for that, like movie titles bot to point that part of the interview out. <laughs> hey, they said the thing. They said the thing. Uh, um, so, uh, I mean, I think we've we've answered quite clearly, you know, across card games in general, Keyforge, like why having a mulligan is important, right? Reduces that variance, gives you some agency, gives you some control a little bit over what the start of the game could look like. Um, so uh, based on h- how Keyforge plays Carlo, why would you say the decision to mulligan is a really important one? What things in the game will that decision affect as you move forward from turn to turn after your start? So I think a big part of it is because a lot of the cards in this game are situational in the sense that, um, you know, good early game, good reactive cards, late game, that kind of thing. And because you don't have control over the way you build your deck, sometimes you get a deck that, you know, some decks might have like two or three early game good cards and that's it and everything else is kind of reactive or other ones might have more good early game or late game cards kind of thing. So because you're kind of stuck with what you get in your deck, um, you can you know you can't just like in, in a game like Magic, you can just say, oh, I'm always getting bad starting hands, so I got to build my deck differently. But because you can't do that in KeyForge, there has to be some tool to you know allow you to kind of have a bit of control over that and determining like how you start off the game is so important, right? If you have a fast deck and you know that you need to race out in front and put the pressure on your opponent, if you don't get those cards early and you get your you know your odd like board clear card and some you know something that's reactive early then like you're going to be failing to you know do what what the strength of your deck is right off the bat um just the same as if you have a like a good reactive deck and you're getting all those cards early on and then you have to kind of like either discard them or you know be faced with potentially holding on to them um it can affect how your your power to react to your opponent later so um I think having a really good start is is really important in this game because of how much of it is, you know, putting your opponent in check with a key and then having someone have to react to you and it's that kind of back and forth. And uh, we know that, you know, 
obviously if you if, if your opponent gets a huge board presence early um and you often face that dilemma of like do i take my next turns to try and slow them down or do i try and establish my own board presence and try and get caught up and kind of climb my way back into the game that way Oh yeah, yeah. I I agree. Knowing whether uh, I think the 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 term from the famous blog post from Magic: The Gathering is you know uh, figuring out when you're on the beatdown, when you are the deck that is uh, moving uh, aggressively towards its win condition, uh, or whether you need to take the time to kind of pick your opponent apart. You take all the gas out of their tank and then and then uh, get ahead of them that way. And yeah, I agree. Knowing knowing what your game plan is so you want to knowing what you want to see in your hand because of your game plan and then because of the matchup too uh, i played a game uh, i played a game recently i have a double grump buggy deck and i kept a hand without a grump buggy because i said well i've got two grump buggies i will probably see them sooner or later and uh, they came too few and too late uh, because i did not mulligan for them and both of them ended up elsewhere and uh, long story short they were critical for my by game plan in that matchup so um yeah yeah it's a it's it's a simple decision but so complicated and i think that's a good that's a good point to to focus in on because sometimes people are a little bit risk adverse with mulligans but sometimes people are a bit optimistic as well so when do you think people what situations in keyforge or general situations in keyforge do you think people get themselves into where they mulligan and then very much regret it either because they really want something to work or because they they miscalculate or just because they get unlucky too frequently so I think there's a couple different ways. One would be, so if you have those specific cards that work um, really well early game and have kind of peter out later, like uh, what's, I think it's called the Terror from Dis from Call, mm. the, uh, Call the Archons. That's like if mm-hmm. your opponent has no Amber, game two. Yeah. If you have a deck with that one, for example, you know that you really want that card early on because later, like just a, a, a four power creature that has no other ongoing ability is is nothing special really, right? So you might be thinking, oh, I should mulligan for a card like that. But if you don't have it in your opening hand, but let's say you had like a, you know, a 3-2-1 distribution or a 4-2-0 distribution of, of cards and you could have, you know, put out a bunch more cards and you went chasing for that one or two or three good early game cards and then you mulligan and you drop like the dreaded, you know, 2-2-1 two, two, and then you've got another, you know, each of those houses that you have two cards and maybe one of those cards is another similar thing that doesn't really do much early game. You got like a... I don't know, some sort of board clear or, or whatever, then you sit there thinking like, oh, why didn't I just stick with my original hand? I could have dumped more cards out. Like, why did I go chasing that one good card or those, those two good cards or whatever? Um, but it could happen on the flip side too, where you start with the 2-2-2 two, 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 and, you know, you've got a really good artifact there maybe and you think, oh, getting this artifact out early like could be really useful, like a mother gun maybe or a, a dominator bobble or something like that. Mm, yeah. And then you go and you mulligan um, hoping for something better than a two-two-two distribution, and you may or may not get it. But either way, if you don't maybe get any of your artifacts and you have like a high artifact deck, you might be regretting that and thinking, why didn't I just stick with like I had something good? But you always feel like it's tough, right? You always want to fit, like think that kind of like the grass is green or like oh, I could get a better hand here. And there's always that little bit of of doubt where you you wonder, is it worth the mull? Is it worth the risk? And we've all had those games where we do it and we're so happy. And we're like, yes, what a good call that was. And then there's <laughs> you know the flip side of like, why did I do this? This is going to cost me the game now. It, right. And that 
in in that front then do you think it's more sensible to to mulligan when you know a deck well when you've played it a lot when you can basically make better calculations about mulligans and be a little bit more cautious with decks that maybe you haven't had quite so much experience with perhaps you're at a sealed event yeah definitely and i think part of that is also going to depend again on whether you're approaching it from a more casual or competitive uh, perspective um and also whether you think there's, I talked a little bit about this in my Mulligan video, but whether you think there's a, a mismatch or not. So like if you if you feel that your deck is stronger than your opponent's deck, you might not need to Mulligan as much because you can just be confident. Like if you have a simple, maybe simple is the wrong word, but you have a more straightforward deck, like something that just like has a lot of cards that just generate bonus amber and you're just kind of trying to race through it, then you might not need to Mulligan as much because usually like there, there might not be that many bad starting hands you could end up with. Whereas if you know that you have kind of an underdog deck or something that has a specific um, sort of order of the the way that you want the cards to come out, or there's a combo that has to come out in a certain way, or you want to get these artifacts out so that you can trigger other things later on, then the mulligan becomes more important and you feel like you want to prioritize it and be more aggressive with that. So um, I think from the perspective of someone who plays it more casually, I almost always approach it as like, when in doubt, I just mulligan. Like if I'm on the fence at all and I'm like, I'm not really happy with this. Well, why not try to mulligan and just see what happens? Because worst case scenario, I end up with a worse hand and I learn from it. And who cares if I lose the game? Like, um, I'm actually going to quote one of my, uh, probably my favorite board game designer, uh, Reiner Knizia here, uh, who said, uh, pardon me if I butcher the quote, but it's something along the lines of, um, the goal of the game should be to should always be to win, but it's the goal that is important, not the winning. Mm. And so it's it's you know as long as you're playing to win, it's not it doesn't like you shouldn't just base your you know your your enjoyment of the game whether you won or not. So something like a mulligan is like I'm exploring and yeah I'm going to try to win the game, but like part of it is the journey and the discovery of how am I going to try to win rather than just did I win or lose. And I think the mulligan factors into that quite a bit yeah wise words wise words we at call of discovery know that it's the journey and not the destination that count because uh of our 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 track record of three threes at vault tours (laughs) 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 oh it's true it's true uh and i will say uh one note on whether or not to mulligan and that entire space we just we just talked through something i've had experience with is the more i play a deck and the better i know a deck uh, the more I know how bad of a hand opening hand that deck can have. So for instance, with one deck, if I see kind of a mediocre hand and I go, oh, maybe I should mulligan, I'll probably go ahead and mulligan. However, there are some decks where I say, you know, this hand is mediocre. However, I know the chances of me opening with the TMTP and both save the packs is pretty high. So I'm going to go ahead and just keep this, um, uh, which I mean, that's not entirely scientific, right? Maybe, uh, maybe I, I lean into a bit of uh, emotion when I've seen some bad opening hands. Um, but if you're practicing well with the deck, you can certainly know. Actually, this is a solid starting hand for this deck, and I want to keep my situational cards in the middle and later in the deck. Absolutely, absolutely. And and if we think about actual cards that we want to keep, um, we don't want to mulligan. You know, I instantly think Keyhammer, Gateway to Disc, don't want to mulligan those. You want them early game, right? Um, 
No, three three everybody three three <laughs> no i am uh actually quite the opposite um carlo what cards are the cards that most make you think oh i'm gonna mulligan that hand yeah honestly um key hammer is obviously one of the best <laughs> examples i think that is just about as bad as it gets early game um you know uh gateway to dis um What's the what's the Brobnar one? Um, the board clear one from Call the Archons, where you Coward's End. Well. Yes, Coward's End. Like, um, you know, and even the the good late game, what's the Burn the Stockpile, Doorstep to Heaven. Um, there's a lot of these cards that you just you you don't want to see them early because not only do they do nothing, but you're sacrificing a potential like huge late game swing for you. It's your sort of like one of your ace cards that's going to then do nothing later if you have mm-hmm. it early. Yeah. I it's that balance again, it's like knowing your deck and the matchup, right? Because if you have multiples of those cards or multiple ways to to do that similar effect and or maybe it's not even as key to your game plan or the matchup if you have if you have that, you know, too much to protect and you're looking at your opponent's deck list and can uh, uh, intelligently surmise that maybe they're not going to be bursting a whole lot. Maybe you can keep it if it's in you, if you have a too much to protect with a couple of shadows cards. Um, but then again, you know, in most games and especially in some matchups, those are going to be critical to have at the right time. And uh, then you'd be torn between, do I keep this in my hand and slow down how much I'm drawing through my deck? Or do I, uh do i just pitch it and then my opponent knows that one of the threats is gone uh, or do i mulligan so yeah yeah that's uh there's a lot of layers to it but in in the end it's it is often best to to mulligan those away if uh if you don't have another reason to to hang on to it also shout out to archiving early game we love you because you help make you help make those opening hands so much better <laughs> You really do. You really do. If only it wasn't so situational. Yeah, that's got to be one of the best mechanics in the game, though. I just I love the idea of archiving uh, as as someone who is such a uh, a planner and organizer and, and that kind of thing in life. Um, just archiving just speaks to me so much in this type of game. <laughs> nice. Yeah, it's it's a good one. It really just feels like the cherry on top of a whole lot of other cool design decisions that uh, adding that mechanic in. Um, as a as a combo enabler and as a uh, as a draw factor as well, and it opens up more design space as well. They can print things and they can do wacky things that just wouldn't be possible if you needed to ensure that all those things were in a hand at once. Yeah, oh, and I will say, <laughs> I will say with the importance of the archive, uh, some of my favorite moments are when I play a Tantadlin and my opponent starts sweating because. <laughs> That doesn't happen often, but it's much more common than I would have guessed. Tantadlin, of course, being the untamed creature, nine power that only deals two in fighting and it's got fight, discard a random card from your opponent's archives. Like usually you play Tantadlin and everybody forgets it got played, but somebody's got something in that archives. Also, all of a sudden that fight ability is a real threat. It's a real threat. I have one word for you, Zach. Dysania. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, Desania is great. The Desania stock has gone up. Has gone up. For anybody who wasn't there for Desania, uh, it's got just a four-power logos creature that's play. Discard all cards in your opponent's archives. Gain one amber for each card discarded this way. So yeah, 
very good card. Now is the time to buy those competitive Desania decks before before the game is reignited again. <laughs> uh, and then I guess one of our last uh, kind of spaces to talk about mulligans is uh, how it's different with first or second player, right? If you're listening, uh, you're likely very aware that the first player will draw seven cards for their opening hand and then just play one. Uh, and of course, the second player has six cards and just takes a normal turn of Keyforge when they go when they go second. So, uh, and Carlo, I know you touched a little bit on this in the video, but um, how does that change the decision to to Mulligan, whether you're a first or second player? Yeah, it's uh, it is surprisingly different. Like in in most games, whether you're first or second, the Mulligan decision isn't going to be that different. I don't think. Um, mm-hmm. But in Keyforge, it's obviously huge because of that first player only getting to play a single card on their turn. So the biggest thing that stands out to me is the fact that, um, you know, if you if you don't mulligan, you play one of your seven cards, you're not even going to draw a new card. So like what you see is what you're going to get. I mean, there's the odd one where like uh, if you play something like, uh, you know, lab work or sloppy lab work, you might be able to archive one of those cards or discard an archive or, or whatever. But for the most part, if you draw those seven and you only play one, you're stuck with those other six. So you really have to think about not only like, yeah, you might get a really good first turn card, you might get that, like we were talking about the terror or whatever, a good artifact out, but are you going to be able to follow that up on your second turn? Or is your second turn then just going to kind of peter out? Because if you take two turns already, and you haven't done a whole lot, you're going to probably be pretty far behind your opponent, uh, if they can have two good turns. So it's, it's not just what can I do on that first turn? Like if you, you know, if you're going second, and you can dump three, four, five cards from your hand, um, or even just two, you kind of have like, yeah, I'm going to get these cards next, but you can kind of sort of like interpret like what what's my next turn going to be, and I can, I'm can i going to draw some new cards up. I might get, you know, a wider spread of that next, uh, of another house, or I, you might, you know, be hoping to get the same house again to, to kind of play with what you have on the board. But going first is like you really have to consider that second turn. Um but also that first, you know, if you're only going to play one single card, you also have to make it count. Like, you're probably going to want either an artifact or um, a creature with some sort of passive ability, like uh, Mother or Succubus or, um, you know, or maybe a big taunt creature because you know that you have other creatures in your hand that you want to play from a different house the next turn to go next to it. So you can get a big taunt, like, you know, Xelix uh, Dominator or um, something like that, one of the big uh, Saurian ones I'm drawing a blank on now. Um, but yeah, I, I think getting, you know, uh, that's why I think like it's it's almost more important to mulligan as a first player because it's mm. you're you're thinking about two things. You're thinking about the first turn as well as the second turn. Whereas sure. when you're second player, you know, your second turn might not factor in as much because if you're going to draw up two, three, four more cards, it's hard to really plan ahead and think about what you're getting. The only other thing that sort of comes to mind for me um, was just like not being able to determine like you know there's a comparison kind of to poker where you know like if you think of texas hold'em for those who might be familiar with it you have the idea of like if you go all in with pocket aces the best hand and then you lose was it a bad decision no not necessarily like it still made sense to go in all in with pocket aces mm-hmm. if you went all in with a 7-2 offsuit and you won is that telling you do it again? No, like that's that's ridiculous. So you can't just base the success of your mulligan decision. You can't just look back and say, I did mulligan and I did win the game. Therefore, it was you know, a good decision. <laughs> it's, it's not, right. you know, there's, right. there's more nuance to it than that. And that's 
that's why it's a really difficult thing to assess whether it was a good choice or not, because if you're playing the odds, like the odds might have been in your favor to mulligan, it might just have not worked out for you this time. So you can't just say like, oh, I mulligan and I had that good card, so I won't do it again next time because it didn't work out. Well, you might have, you know, had the unusual unlucky mulligan that didn't actually pan out, but it doesn't mean it was the wrong decision. Um, but that's one of the difficult things to separate and something you can only really determine from, like you've said, like really playing a deck over and over and mastering it, getting to know the ins and outs and getting to see really, you know, is the is the mulligan worth it long term rather than just basing that decision off of like one or two games and, and just basing it off of did I win or did I lose? Yeah, very very wise sentiment. I think it's it comes back to the old luck versus skill, and you might have the skillful play of mulliganing because you've done a, a strong calculation of your chances. Uh, it doesn't mean you'll be lucky though. It doesn't mean you'll be lucky. And unfortunately, our brains work on results rather than on said calculations. Well, um, we didn't mulligan the episode, or maybe we did. Maybe you're about to hear another episode entirely uh, about mulligans <laughs> that says completely the opposite thing. Um, mulligans are really bad um, because you always know which cards you're going to get if you believe. If you believe in the heart of the card, then you will always get the right thing, even if you've got a deck full of Mega Narps. True. True true story. Anyhow, wow. uh, we've been Call wow. of Discovery. It's been delightful to have you on, Carlo. But where can people find you if we haven't mentioned it enough over the course of the episode? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thank you guys uh, so much for having me. This has been a blast. And uh, if you do want to check us out, uh, we're on YouTube. Just punch in all you can board. Um, and yeah, we're, we're on social media as well. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, we're not too active on, on our Facebook. But uh, yeah, I would say your YouTube channel is the best place to go. We cover all kinds of board game stuff. Um, I've started kind of doing some more Keyforge videos. And I know Dylan covers uh, Marvel Champions, the card game. So if anyone's interested mm, in that lovely. too, he's got uh, quite a bit of coverage on that. And um, yeah, if anyone you know has any requests for other type of Keyforge content um, you want to see, let me know because uh, I, I want to do whatever kind of helps bring new people into the game or... Um, helps get people you know talking about the game or playing it more so i'm open to open to ideas for that awesome awesome looking forward to having you back in a fortnight's time to talk about a very mysterious deck uh together um but in the meantime dear listener if you are enjoying call of discovery please do subscribe on your local podcast app of choice local podcast app i mean it could be a global podcast app if you like but if you like local ones we're probably on them too if you are new to keyforge please visit the new player guide on arquan arcana it is the keyforge wiki link below and you can check out this wonderful game. If you are looking to support us, monetarily, that is, please do visit our Patreon link, uh, which is also below, where you can sign up to support us monthly and enjoy rewards like our exclusive, yes, exclusive Discord, where we get many of the topics and questions for this show. Let us also know what you like to see more of and less of in future shows by interacting with us across social media or on Twitter, which is also social media. Why have I separated those two out? We will never know. But you can do it the old-fashioned way as well by sending us an email at podcast at callofdiscovery.com. Have you answered the call of discovery? <laughs> <laughs>